2 Kings 6, verse 8 to 17. You can follow along on the screen as I read the passage aloud for us. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such a place, such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of the passing that place because of the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is God's word. Morning, church. What I would like to do today is I'd like to talk about uh, what life was like before the internet, because I was alive then. Um, I want to talk about exorcisms, uh, then do some super nerdy Bible stuff, and then to reward you for listening to my super nerdy Bible stuff, I will play for you an animated video. Uh, we used to call these, before the age of the internet, cartoons. So I'll play for you a cartoon. And then I will end with talking about riding bikes. Um, I'm calling this sermon, uh, Re-Enchanting the Bible, and that will make sense at the end. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, would you be with us? I pray that um, there would be this uh, a sense that happens in this series that we see uh, the, the significance of who you are and the significance of who we are as your followers in this world, seen and unseen. In Jesus' name, amen. On most Sundays, uh, um, most of you aren't here by this time, at this time, but we start church at 11.05, and we start by a, what's called a call to worship. So uh, typically uh, a pastor gets up, and I do when I'm here, I get up, and then I have everyone stand, and I call them into worship. This is us, like, moving from, like, what we were doing throughout the week into this very sacred space of um, singing and fellowship and learning and response to God and communion and all that stuff. And so I usually read from a psalm, and last week I read from Psalm 29, and it went like this. This was last week. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now, this is a really great psalm. The thing is, I remember walking off stage, just coming down those steps and going, I knew it was coming. Like, I know next week. I'm like, heavenly beings. I wonder if they just like understood what that means. I wonder if that kind of thing sounds strange to people where, I know it does, we typically kind of pass over things like that. We read and we're like, oh, it's heavenly beings. Yeah, that, that's there in the Bible. I don't know what that means. Or we think that they're angels and who really knows what, angels are about, so we kind of move on. But this kind of like heavenly beings language is all over the Bible. For example, uh, 1 Kings in the Old Testament. We read from 2 Kings, but 1 Kings, um, I'm going to read you a, a section, but the background is that there is a, a very wicked king, probably the most wicked king that Israel's ever had, if not the, the most, the second most wicked king. And he was so bad that God is going to judge him. Now, here's the scene of what happens in the heavenly realm about this judgment. 1 Kings 22, 19 through 22. Listen to what the Lord says. This is a prophet saying this. A prophet saying, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. That's not weird. If you're new to the, if you know the Bible at all, like God on a throne, that's not, not weird at all. Sitting on the throne with all the armies of heaven around him. It's kind of weird, unless you know what that means. 
and on his right and on his left. So another um, word for armies of heaven, we're going to read this throughout today, is um, host of heaven or God's heavenly counsel or God's divine counsel. So God is there and he has a counsel with him, okay? Counsel. And then he says to this counsel on his right and his left, who can entice Ahab to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead so he can be killed? There were many suggestions in this council, divine council, and finally a spirit. It It doesn't say an angel, it says a spirit. Approached the Lord and said, I can do it. How will you do this? The Lord asked. And the spirit replied, I will go out and inspire all of Ahab's prophets to speak lies. You will succeed, said the Lord. Go and do it. Okay, so you have this scene of God doing judgment on this king, and then he asks counsel from a divine counsel of how to do it, and then one spirit has an idea, and God said, go do that thing. Okay, there's that. Okay, in 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 17, which um, we just read, there's uh, Elisha and Elisha's assistant, and Elisha is a prophet who keeps telling on the king, and the king is really angry, and the, the king wants Elisha dead. And so he tells these people to surround where he's at. We figured out where he is. Surround him and kill him. So Elisha's assistant wakes up one morning and finds out that where they're staying is surrounded with horses and chariots. And he runs to tell Elisha, that's it. They found us. They're going to kill us. We're dead. And Elisha says, it's okay. We're good. Uh, There's more people with us, or there's more with us than with them. And Elisha's assistant's like, "Uh, I mean... I've looked outside. I just got done looking outside. There's two of us, me and you, and there's a lot of them. And then he, Elisha said, God, open his eyes. Open his eyes, which has been my prayer for you. Open his eyes so he can see. So Elisha turns back around and sees the same army, but there's a larger, bigger army with chariots of fire. So divine army behind them. And then if you read the story, all those horsemen go blind and they, they leave safely. So there's that. Now you might be thinking, yeah, and by the way, Old Testament's full of that stuff. And you might be thinking, well, that's some weird Old Testament stuff because the Old Testament is straight weird. Okay, I'll give you that. It is. But First Peter, that's New Testament, right? This is our, this is our territory as the church. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the New Testament. All right. So First Peter uh, 3, 18 through 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. All familiar stuff. You're like, yep, I'm tracking. He was put to death in the body, and ma- but made alive in the spirit. That's resurrection. Okay, we did it. After being made alive, he went and, pro- and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What? Okay, Jesus so resurrected from the dead, and then the first thing he did before he told humans that he and showed himself to humans, he showed himself to the imprisoned spirits who God imprisoned long ago in the days of Noah, who are waiting, and Jesus goes and preaches to them. There's that, okay? And then, there's, uh, and then it goes on. It, it, it talks a little bit about water baptism, and this is how that section ends. Speaking of water baptism, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him, at God's right hand in the heavenlies. And then there's this one in Jude. It goes like this. Jude 1.6. And the angels who did not keep their position. So you have angels in the unseen realm, the heavenly realm, who did not keep their positions of authority. So angels have authority, like tasks, roles, job descriptions, right? Authority in heaven, in the heavenlies. They abandoned their proper position and their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Okay. It's everywhere. This kind of stuff's everywhere if you start looking for it. Add to this all the accounts that we have of demon-possessed people or demonized people in the Gospels that Jesus delivers when he delivers them from demonic oppression when he's doing his ministry. Add to that those, all those accounts, which there's tons, that the Bible is basically a whole collection of writings about the unseen world, about the unseen realm. But what we typically do with these passages is we spiritualize them. 
We make them something about our own lives with God. Like God is for us. There's more, for, he's more for us than the enemy is for us. Or God will judge the wicked. Or God knows how to fight our battles for us. And all of that is true. And they make amazing sermons, like incredible sermons. And I, I'm not taking anything away from that. Those are great sermons. But we often only do that with those passages. Because we look, if we look at those passages or these texts, and what they're saying, like what they're really saying, and what the people who wrote these texts would have been thinking when they were writing these texts, and what the people who originally received these texts would have been learning when they were reading these texts in their context is too much of a stretch for us. Because we have a problem. And the problem is we're all rational Western people who believe everything can be explained by the hard or soft sciences. We're materialists, not in the sense of we like stuff, though we do like stuff. We're materialists in the sense of we believe everything is material, everything is matter, and therefore everything we experience is a result of material interactions, whether that's chemical in our brain or if it's, it's in the hard scientists, hard sciences outside of our, our brain. Think of it like this. Think of the, the first uh, Sherlock Holmes movie um, with, um, why do I keep forgetting this guy's name? Robert Downey Jr., thank you. With Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, uh, Guy Ritchie directed it. Okay, do you guys remember that first movie? Do you guys see that movie? It's, it's pretty good. I actually downloaded it on my computer, and when I'm stuck at an airport, I watch it because it's just so entertaining. Anyway, so think about this movie. This movie, the, the villain in this movie, the, the antagonist is a dark, sinister character who is claiming to be in touch with the dark arts, who has basically the devil on his side, doing the devil's work. He, one point in the, in the movie, raises from the dead. He quotes Revelation in weird ways. Now, and it's all over the, the first kind of like part of the movie. But Sherlock Holmes doesn't fall for any of it at any point. He believes that there has to be a rational explanation for all of it. So him and the good doctor, Dr. Watson, set off to solve the mystery. And they do. And at the end of the movie... There is no supernatural activity at all happening. It's all done, smoke and mirrors and gadgets and all kinds of chemistry and alchemy. That's all it is. This is basically any episode of Scooby-Doo ever. <laughs> if you ever watch Scooby-Doo, if you grew up watching Scooby-Doo, they, the, the, the Monsters, Inc. or whatever, they, I forget the name of them, Mystery, Inc., they go to a different town that has a ghost or a, a monster or something, and they go to chase the monster, and they're scared of the monster, and the monster chases them, and then eventually... They unmask the monster, and the monster isn't a monster at all. It's always someone doing it. And so this is like it. It's never, it's never supernatural. It's not, there are no real monsters. You just have to figure out what's going on, except for one Scooby-Doo episode. Scooby-Doo Zombie Island. The monster in that episode is real, and it freaked everybody out when it came out. But that's a different topic. My point is that this is how we watch movies. This is how we explain away strange phenomena. Like, you know, there was a congressional hearing about UFOs. I mean, there was a congressional hearing about UFOs. Okay, so that happened. And, and some of us were like, well, if, if the government's saying it, it's got to be fake. I mean, this kind of... And we, we, we have a way of explaining away phenomena. We can't, as rational Western people, think there, there has to be an some sort of hard sciences explanation. And we do this with the Bible. There's also, an, actually, I think a bigger problem that's emerging. There was two recent sociological studies, done, one done by the, the Pew Research folks at Peer Research. And, and the study went like this. The, the number of religiously unaffiliated people, meaning people that want nothing to do with the church and thus Christianity, in the demographic of 18 to 29-year-olds has increased by one-third over the last, in just five years. It's the number of people that want nothing to do with the church or, or Christianity and the 18 to 29 demographic has increased one-third in five years. That's the most ever. Now, but here's the interesting part. Another study done about with this, uh, found that the same demographic, 18 to 29-year-olds, the same demographic, this another study found that people, these, this demographic believe that people can become possessed by a demon in alarming rates. 
So in the demographic most disinterested in religion, something is occurring in their lives that is making them conclude that demons are real. And this is a very strange development. I heard about this study from Father Carlos Martins, who is a legit top exorcist in the United States. And he's been doing it for decades and decades. And he decided after hearing about these studies that he has to do something about this for that demographic to connect demonology with who Christ is. And so he started a podcast to do this. And the podcast is called The Exorcist Files, which is the best name for any podcast ever done ever. And one season, only one season has been out. And it's, it hit top podcast with over 3 million downloads. Just exploded. Basically, this podcast is him opening up his files over decades of exorcisms. And he'll be the first to say most people that come to him have a, are, are mentally ill. Way over half, he says. But there are some, and these files talk about them, that they were actually demons. When I was a kid, growing up, we didn't have smartphones, and thus we didn't, we didn't have the internet. We didn't, I remember the big day where we got our first computer that was just like a green screen and whatever. Um, so we didn't have internet. So, uh, so what would happen is um, people would knock on your door, and you would answer the door. <laughs> like you would actually answer the door. So there were, you didn't have ring or anything like that. You had like this like peephole that was in the door. And it made people look weird, like a fisheye effect almost. And you're like, and you look. And, and then no matter what, I mean, you look and you're like, I don't recognize the person. And then you still open the door. <laughs> and then they would say hi and you would say hi and you would talk. And then sometimes these people that were at your door wanted to sell you something. Whether it was a magazine subscription, you can choose all the list of magazines. Sometimes it was like candy or cookies or whatever it was. They would just sell things. I remember one time someone came with selling my my, my dad bought the, uh, the, the family set of Encyclopedia Britannicas, okay? A huge set of books, again, before the internet. And I grew up in a family that, that didn't read a lot. Like, we weren't like a reading family. We didn't like read as a downtime. That wasn't our thing. Actually, we didn't have that, that many books. I, don't, I can't think of a book in our house. But the, my dad bought these, and he put them in the, the hallway closet, and he, he sat us down and told us a story like, I don't know where I get this from. So he, he like sits us down, he wants to tell us, explain to us, the Encyclopedia Britannica. So we'd sit us kids down, and we were really fairly young, and he's like, kids, the world is big, and there's all of this history and knowledge that we have, and you don't know any of it because your school is whatever, but these, these books, all the knowledge of the world is in them, all of the knowledge. <laughs> and at that time, it, we, it was all the knowledge, I think. And you can turn to any subject, and you can find out a history, and all this stuff is all right here. And I remember going, wow. I mean, I was just blown away. Like, that, all the books? Thank you, Dad. Thank, what a gift, Father. What a gift. <laughs> and I remember the first, the first one I grabbed was the D for demons. <laughs> first one. Opened it up. And angels. Poof, opened it up. I'm like, I, I got to know if they're real. And then they were in there. I'm like, they, they have, they're in the encyclopedia. They've got to be real. They're in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I would read them, show art and all this other stuff. And I was so fascinated. There is, there is a fascination that we have. There is this, um, sometimes an enchantment we, have, enchantment we have around it, around the unseen realm. In a lecture I heard with Father Carlos, um, he talked about a, a recent horror movie. It's called Nefarious. It's one of those demon possession movies. And he was actually a consultant on the movie. And he said, actually, the movie is billed as a horror movie, but it's not a horror movie. It's a movie about the mind of a demon. It is the, probably the best movie that you'll find about the mind of a demon. And the movie is about a prisoner scheduled to be executed who is demon possessed. But the people in the prison think that he's trying to claim insanity and get out of being killed. So they being a psychiatrist and a very, very um, like renowned psychiatrist in to basically say, you're not insane to this guy. And so the psychiatrist comes in and sits down with this person who has a demon. And the, the demon, for his part, is frank about his identity with the doctor from the very beginning. He doesn't hide who he is to the doctor at all, and the doctor smugly relies on his science and mental acumen to interact with what he believes is just a psychologically ill man, believing that his education and his science have equipped him to handle the situation. And the, but the demon's intellect in this movie is superior to the physician and turns the physician inside out. 
the, the, the psychiatrist considers taking a break during their first session together. And he's like, we'll take a break. Uh, and he decides to stay. And because his pride and his curiosity won't let him leave the room. And the demon then turns to him and says, okay, now are you ready for round two? And the doctor says, I wasn't aware it was a fight. And the demon says, and that's why you're losing. The real problem is one that I think the philosopher C.S. Lewis uh, put his finger on many years ago, is that there are two equal and opposite errors when we, we fall into when we talk about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence altogether. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, what's the, why does this all matter? Like, why? Like, is this like, is this like, um, like it's interesting because it's, it, we're talking about the, the, the demonic here. This matters because of this. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against the evil spirits in the heavenly places. Our, what, we're fight, what we're really fighting, we're not fighting with each other. We're not fighting with other countries. We're not fighting with other companies. We're not fighting with what we're really fighting with. What we're really fighting with is evil rulers and authorities in the unseen realm against mighty powers in this dark world and evil spirits in the heavenly places. That's what we're fighting against. There is an unseen world, one that many people ignore and are happy to be ignorant about, but we're told that it's where the real fight is. Now, when I say fight, I'm, I'm talking here about struggle. Here's what I think. Most of you in here, maybe all of you in here, desire or want something deep or deeper. Some sort of spiritual awareness and understanding, and that's partly why you're, you're here, probably why you come to this church. I know that there are, and I also know this, there are parts of your life that even though you want deep spirituality and you want to know God, you want to follow him, however you want to frame it, I also know that there are things in your life, things you do or the habits you have or the addictions you have that you know are keeping you from this desire. It might be drugs, alcohol, workaholism, a shopping addiction, whatever. It could be anger or jealousy, it might be the belief that no matter what you do, you can never be enough. You might struggle with racism or sexual addiction. You might have an inordinate love for this country that's just crazy. Or you might have an inordinate hate for another country that's crazy. You might not be able to stop looking at pornography or stop thinking that the biggest problem in your life is your spouse. Whatever these things are, you know that they're keeping you from a, the deep spiritual life that you really desire. And when the scriptures say that you're in a struggle or a fight, those things that we said, these things that we struggle with are not from other people. It's not even with ourselves. The real struggle is in the unseen realm. These powers, evil rulers, authorities in the unseen world and against evil spirits. Now, caveat, important caveat. This is not an out. This is not the, like, the devil made me do it sort of cop-out. Like, well, I, well, I'm addicted to pornography because of the devil, and what am I going to do about that? You know, that sort of thing. That's not what this is. You have a will, as we'll, we'll learn more over this series, and you make choices. The choices that we make are sometimes choices to then um, partner with or align with these evil, dark forces, or we can choose to partner with and align with God. Dark, light, good, evil. This is the foundation of every story because it is the story. It's, it's woven in us. Now, you might be, be uh, like thinking, how is that? How, how is this? How do we get here? How do we get to this like unseen sort of thing? Or what do we do about it? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Okay, so at this point, I want to I give like probably lesson one of the unseen realm, okay? Lesson one. And this is where it's going to get a little bit nerdy for some of you. Let's go back to 1 Kings, what we read at the very beginning. 1 Kings 22, put that on the screen. Okay, so 1 Kings 22. I want to talk about the armies of heaven. See armies of heaven. Listen to what the Lord says. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the armies of heaven. This is, this is the lesson one. This is like what I, what, what I hope to teach you today. 
Armies of heaven are also called the divine council. And this is going to come, this has to do with principalities, powers, and rulers. This has to do with Jesus over, like, having power with, over angels and powers in the unseen realm, as we read in, in, in Jude. Um, so this here, this here, um, divine council, has to do with uh, armies of heaven, also called um, um, sons of God, is also another term for it in the Old Testament. They're created... These unseen divine counsel are, are beings that were created by God to carry out his decisions and to also partner with God in governing the heavens or the unseen realm. Now, um, if you're wanting some Genesis, you're like, but where is it at in Genesis? Uh, Genesis 1, verses 14 through 19, when, when it's the creation poem, there's a part where it talks about the, the creation of light, let there be light. And then when you get down to verse 14, it talks about the function of light. And, and, and the way it talks about it is both the function of light and moon and stars, but also that they rule, that these, these beings, they're actually like beings. This is how the ancients thought about it. The stars were actually represented spiritual beings that ruled with God. So you have some of the, the genesis of this idea there. Also, let me, let's go to something really explicit. Um, Psalm 89. If you have a Bible, you could turn there. It's on the screen. Psalm 89, 5 through 7. This heavenly being sort of like divine counsel and what they are and what they do. Look at this. Verses 5 through 7. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness to and the assembly of the holy ones. The assembly of the holy ones is like this divine counsel that God has. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? The skies and ancient writing and thinking were the things that were above the earth, beyond the earth, so they associated the skies and the heavens with the unseen realm. You with me? That's how they thought. For who in the unseen realm can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? So there are heavenly beings. There's even a council of, um, of divine ones. Actually, the, the Bible calls them Elohim. Now, if you know uh, Hebrew, you're like, Elohim, that's, that's Yahweh. Not always. Actually, these, these entities around the divine council are called Elohim. What we translate as gods. They're called gods. So there's Yahweh God, and then there's these other created Elohim that God has around a throne that he rules with, okay? For who in the skies compares to who is, among, who, is, who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? So God is, is obviously holy and separate above all of these other beings, but is with them. In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. So what this psalm is talking about is that in the council of these divine beings, God is the creator, the one who's feared, the one who's awesome, the one who's above them. Um, Hebrew terminology, they call him the Elohim of Elohim, the God of gods. He is the one, the origin, the singularity. He's the one who's, who's created everything, right? Okay. We see this again in Psalm 82, and this is where it gets... This is where it starts leading into maybe some things that you, 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 you thought about the way the world works in the Bible and the way the Bible is. So Psalm 82 says this. This is NIV. God presides in the great assembly. This is, again, counsel, God's counsel. He renders judgment among the gods. Notice how God is in parentheses. That's, that's um, unfortunate. Air quotes, like... You know, the gods. And you were like, oh, they're talking about the gods. Like, gods, there's no gods. It's like the gods. Not, no, there's no, there's no air quote gods in Hebrew. It's the gods. Look at ESV. It's, it's more literal. And ESV also, just a, a, a nerd footnote, is based heavily on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are the latest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament, which are the most accurate that we have. And so when we look to the Dead Sea Scrolls that we've, that, that, we've discovered a lot later it 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 corrects so much of the so much of this sort of small language that we kind of get wrong 
we've gotten wrong in the past, and, it, and we can map it over like, oh, no, this, this actually does mean God. This says is Elohim. This is actually what it's saying. Okay, ESV. Here it is. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So a couple things here. There are gods, and there's Yahweh God. He's the creator God who creates other gods. And these other gods rule with him in a council in the unseen realm. Okay, so you're, hopefully you're tracking a little bit slowly. I'm going a lot slower than I did first service. <laughs> slow down, slow down. Okay, now we see this play out in the book of Daniel. Now, I've studied Daniel for the better part of 20 years, and I love this book so much. Um, and I didn't ever see this because I... I always saw this, and I put this in a, and by the way, everyone has to have this bucket. You put it in the, I'll, I'll deal with that later bucket. You always have to have that when you're reading the Bible. Like, uh, I'm going to deal with that later. <laughs> well, today's the day, everybody. Here's the later. <laughs> okay, so this is um, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon. Babylon is a very important part of this story. He's king of Babylon. He is actually the king ruling over the known earth at this time. Like Babel, Babylon is the, is the nation. Not only is it the nation, but Israel is in, is in exile in Babylon, and they're in Babylon, and one of these exiles has made his way up top of the ranks, and he's a counselor to the king, and his name is Daniel. And, and, and the king is having these really disturbing dreams, and he goes to Daniel because Daniel can interpret the dreams because he says that Daniel's God is the God of gods. Daniel's God is like the, the, the true God of gods, okay? So this is the vision he had. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher. Okay, you just introduced to a new word that is such a cool word, a watcher. Now, a watcher is a term used for a divine being in God's counsel. It refers to how they were watchful over the affairs of humanity and never slept. They're the watchers. So, I saw in visions in my head, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. And he proclaimed aloud and said thus, and this part, we don't really need to, this basically you're going to um, go insane, but we'll read it anyway. He said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. Okay, that's the judgment. And then it says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it, sets, over, it to the, uh, sets over it the lowliest of men. Okay, so... What, he's, what it's saying here, the decree is this. This decree came from the watchers. This decree came from this divine council. Not just that, but this decision was by the word of the Holy One. So God is partnering with them in such a way that they're able to make decisions that affect earth. And then they do this so that everyone living will know that the most high rules over the watchers and that world and this world. Okay, there's a lot more uh, uh, sections like this, like Job 38. Um, we also see the watchers and God um, talking with them about uh, is it just to uh, harm or is it just that the unjust suffer? And so the, the, the council is talking about this with God. Now, these biblical scenes in the divine council tell us that God's council are members of God's, of God's like chosen um, divine rule to participate in God's rule. I, I use those words very importantly. They participate in God's rule. Think about this. Who else was created to participate in God's rule? Humanity. This is where we get into Genesis chapter um, 
2 and 3. So, and if you're like, where does it say this in Genesis? Here it is. In Genesis chapter 2, man, Adam, where we get the word Adam, Adam, was created from the dirt. Adam means dirt. Created from the dirt, and God breathes into him the breath of life. Okay? And where God creates Adam and Eve is a place called the Garden of Eden. It wasn't just like a garden. It was a mountaintop garden. Why a mountaintop garden? Because um, it was a place where heaven, the heavens, and the earth met. Uh, here's, a, here's a graphic. This is a, taken from the Bible Project. And um, spoiler alert, I'll let you watch a movie from the Bible Project in a second. Okay, just hang on. Just hang on. You get to watch, you get to watch a film class. Just hang on. Okay, look at, this is, this, is a, this is a picture. You have earth is a circle below, and then you have the unseen realm, the divine realm, the heavens above. And you have the seraphim, the divine council, God's throne, all of that there. And then you have earth, and then you have Eden, which is actually like a place where they both meet. And not just both meet, but this is where God kept his, um, his council. This is where the divine council was in Eden with God. Um, some scholars translate, let us make man in our image to mean that's what God was talking to the council, not, we, we interpret that, and I have historically the Trinity, which it's the seed, uh, my friend Tim Mackey, I have a hard time with this one, it's a hard one for me personally, I've been wrestling with this for a few years now, and, and Mackey, I, 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 t- I talked with him this week and he was like, it's the seedbed of, of the Trinitarian, Trinitarian idea, it's the seedbed of it. Let us make man in our image is like God's counsel. That's what, that's what a lot of new scholarship is saying. This is the divine counsel. It's there. Okay, so you have Eden. All right, so you have Eden, but here's the thing. Eden's not everywhere. The, the, the space that God is is not everywhere. It's not down below necessarily, right? So God said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Basically, I want you to take Eden and spread it all over the world. That's the... Divine human mandate. This is what God has given us to rule the earth as his image bearers, as his imagers, as people who represent God in this earth. And that's our job. But here's the thing. Eden, where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm overlap, um, where, the, where the divine council is, these beings, there is a, an evil one that gets in. Isaiah has a vision of God's throne and, and the creatures around God's throne. And one of them is described as a seraphim. You know what seraphim is in Hebrew? Snake. So this, like, one of the beings around God's throne represented looked like a snake. So it's no surprise when you see a snake in the garden, he's a, he's a divine being that is now in rebellion against God, who, for all kinds of reasons, and you find out later in the Old Testament, is rebelling against God and his rule, and is trying to take humanity down with them, and so this place that overlaps heaven and earth where there's spiritual beings and earthly beings, this snake gets in and deceives Adam and Eve. This divine being deceives Adam and Eve. And they fall into sin. And they're cast down. Um, some Hebrew translations say um, Satan was cast down to earth, but some say under earth, like he was the ruler of the dead. So now there's death. There was no death before. And if there's death, there has to be a place where people go when they die. And there's people that hold them there. And so there had to be a place where when Jesus was resurrected that he went and said, you're free. So all that's there, right? All that's there. Okay. Um, Now, okay, one last thing. You're getting to the video in a second. Okay, I promise. That's the first rebellion. There's actually three rebellions. We'll get to all three of them. But the third one's an important one. This is actually where we get... Uh, all, all kinds of weird stuff. Okay, here it is. The rebellion in Genesis 11 is called the Tower of Babel. Let me read it to you really quick. Now the whole world had one language and common speech, and the people moved eastward, and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone, and tar for mortar, and then said, come, let us build ourselves a city with tower that reaches to the heavens, the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the city and the tower and the people were building. And the Lord said, 
If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, that us refers possibly to the divine council, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord, he himself does this, scattered them from all over the, all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, Babel, Babylon, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the earth. Okay, let's take a lot of these concepts and put them all together real quick. After the flood, God repeated the command to cover the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, and cover the earth with God's glory. God is kickstarting the ruling influence through humanity thing all over again. It didn't work. It didn't work again. People refused. Rebellion in their hearts. They had a better idea. Let's build a tower and avoid being scattered. And then let's make this tower reach to the heavens. But it's not just a tower. It's a ziggurat. It's a new Eden. A a demonic Eden, so to speak. A place where heaven and earth would meet, but for far more nefarious reasons. I always think this is a strange story because... These people were just building a large building. How is a large building a threat to God? It's like when we were building the, the, the new, like, Salesforce Tower, God's like, oh, no. I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. I hope they don't build it. To, you know, is, is that a threat to God that people would build a big building? No, there, ha, there has to, it wasn't just a building. There has to be more going on. And there was more going on. We find, about that, we find out about that later in the story in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32 says this, and it's talking about it's talking about the Tower of Babel. Here it is. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Sons of God is div- divine beings. God, the divine council, Elohim. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What's going on? What Babel was was a human and divine rebellion. It was these, these, this divine council that rebelled against God and were thrown down to earth and then mixed with humanity to then build something for themselves that God saw as a threat not just a big building, a ziggurat. It was like, we're going to build a new Eden, but a nefarious Eden, a demonic Eden, an anti-Eden Eden. That's what we're going to do. And God's like, they surely could do that. So I'm going to confuse their language, and not just confuse their language. It says that he gave every nation a God according to the number of the sons of God. That's how he fixed the borders. So he gave one nation this God, this Elohim, this divine member of the council who is in rebellion to God. He's like, you guys want to rule yourselves? Fine, I'll give you the gods. So there is a sense that the gods are real. So when, when the first commandment, you know, have no other gods before me, God wasn't saying there's no gods. But actually, no, there were actual gods. Were they lesser gods? Were they God? Was God still Elohim? God of gods? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. But was there something going on? So... Jude and Peter were pulling from um, the book of Enoch when they were talking about, because the book of Enoch talks a little bit about what was happening um, when the gods ruled over the nations and they gave them really horrible ways to kill each other and technologies to do drugs and build things. And that, that's what the gods were doing. So what, is, what does Israel have to do with it? And if you read the story, God is starting the story over again with Abraham. I'm going to choose a man who's so old and a woman who's so old, they can't have kids. And the only way they're going to have kids is by a miracle. And I'll do that miracle. Abraham, you're going to have a child in your old age. And you will be mine. And you will have a people that will be my people. And I will make you a light to the nations. Do you see? Like it's, hopefully it's just like all coming together. Okay, if not, let me just play you a video. How about that? So here's a video. It's not that long. It's a couple minutes. And hopefully it starts to put these things together, and then I have one last thing to share, and we're done. A couple things as, I, as we end. Um, we have a, an email 
call, uh, it's hello at realitysf if you have any questions in this series. You can email that. You won't get a personal response, but they will help us collect emails, your stories, your feedback, all of that stuff that will help shape future series, possible after church Q&A when we're talking about this, a podcast that we're going to be doing midweek, just to help, like, I loved it. We would love to hear from you and like what's hitting, what's not hitting, what's the questions so that we can address those because um, this is all really, really important stuff. Also, go, go watch the Spiritual Beings videos on YouTube for podcasts. There's like six of them and they're all short like that and they're incredible. So basically get everything I kind of want to say in like 12 minutes of watching those and we'll take like 12 weeks to just talk about it here. Um, and lastly, if you are a reader, if you're like, I'm not into videos, I'm into books, you're that person, I love you. God bless you. Um, read uh, Supernatural by Michael Heiser. He wrote the book Unseen Realm, but Unseen Realm, if you like footnotes and if you're really academic, you can read that book. But for everyone else, that I, I, I like Supernatural better after reading both. Um, supernatural, small, digestible. Okay, let me end by talking about bicycles. C.S. Lewis has this really, really wonderful essay called um, Talking About Bicycles. And in it, he talks about there's four stages of riding a bike, and every stage actually maps over pretty much anything in life. And the first statement is he calls unenchantment, where a bike is just a thing with two wheels and a seat and handlebars. Like, you're like, oh, there's a bike. And you don't know what it is. And you don't really understand it. Like my son, Nowen, sees a bike and he's like, that's cool. I think it's cool. I, you know, it's whatever. And then we teach him how to ride a bike. So there's this unenchantment. You're not enchanted with the bike yet. It's just a, a thing. But then you learn how to ride a bike. And then you're given freedom to go take that bike out. And then that's when an enchantment happens. He, 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 he writes this. Then came a time when you have a bicycle. And to have learned to ride it and to be at last spinning along on one's own early in the morning under trees in and out of shadows was like entering paradise. That apparently effortless and frictionless gliding, more like swimming than any other motion, but really most like the discovery of a fifth element that seemed to have solved the secret of life. I don't know if you ever remember that part, that enchantment with the bicycle that you had when you were young. I remember mine, riding to 7-Eleven on my own with the freedom of like just putting my bike out front and going in and buying whatever I wanted, riding to school just early in the morning by myself. My mom didn't have, I didn't wait for my mom to take me anywhere. I was on my own. The freedom of it. It was enchantment. It was like, I felt like I was a warrior on a dragon just going through the world, right? Or on a, on a big dog, like never ending story, if you ever know that, that movie. Anyway, so it feels like that. You're just completely enchanted. Then comes disenchantment, where a bike is just a bike. It's a mode of transportation, and it's a pain in the butt. You, you, you ride it and you, you show up sweaty everywhere you go. And you have to wear a dumb helmet and it messes up some people's hair. And um, you have to wear different shoes sometimes and you pack other clothes in your backpack and then you might, it might get stolen. It depends on where you park it and you have to carry around a giant lock everywhere. It's just transportation, man. It's just what it is, right? And it's disenchanted. It's just a mode of transportation. But then, as you age, as you get older, and I don't know, whatever... Uh, Tyler Madsen, our worship pastor, and Kelly just bought a bike for their family, one of those bikes with two-seater and then like a basket for the kid that's electric. And to hear him talk about riding the bike right now, he is re-enchanted. <laughs> they go to dinner on it. They're just have to have to pedal that hard. The kid's in the back. kid's like, yeah. And Kim and Kelly are like, we're French or whatever. You know, like, this is awesome. <laughs> and it's just enchanted all over again. It's like what you think it's like, you know, in like Copenhagen or something. Like, this is it. This is how you live life, you know. That's re-enchantment. It's all the stuff of like reminiscent of when you were a kid mixed with the reality of how life is, mixed with like grown-up realization that life is really enchanted. And C.S. Lewis says, actually, this can map over every experience in your life. This actually, and he even says this, he says, if someone is angry about something, they're either unenchanted or disenchanted. You have to figure out what it is. It's like if they don't like San Francisco, either they've never lived here and they're on a news station saying that this place is the worst, they're unenchanted. And there's people that lived here for 12 years and they're disenchanted. And then there's people that lived here for 30 years and they're re-enchanted. It's like yesterday we went to 
um, Pianos in the Park, which everyone should go today. It's going on in, um, in the um, Botanical Gardens in Golden Gate Park. There's pianos just tucked in every little corner and you come upon a piano and someone's playing it and some pianos are open and a kid will jump up and play it and everyone's clapping. It's just, and like the city, I, I'm in a phase right now where I'm getting re-enchanted with the city. Just like re-enchanted, where I lived through the disenchantment and now I'm getting re-enchanted. Where I'm like, I know the problems, I know the places to like, yeah, that place sucks, I totally get that. And then there's other places that are beautiful. So, all of life is this way. Now, why do I say this? The spiritual realm is like this. There's a part where you didn't know anything about it and there's a part where you started growing up and you might even become a Christian and you're like, oh my gosh, it's all, everything's Satan or everything's God, right? You're like, God, thank you for the parking spot. Oh my gosh, it's God, God. It's like, oh, that's totally Satan. I rebuke that, Satan. And everything's God or Satan. Everything is. Everything is. It's so enchanted. Everything, oh my gosh, that's deception of the devil. I rebuke that and that's Satan. And that, it's never anyone. It's always God or Satan. And then you get disenchanted. And I went through a period like this where I even remember a sermon where someone was teaching on demythologizing the Bible. All those gods in the Bible aren't gods. They're just your heart creating idols. Is that true? Yeah. Are those gods? Yes. Both. But I remember like, oh, it all has psychological understanding. There's always a psychological answer to it. Everything has a psychological explanation. Um, none of it's really spiritual. You can scrub all that out and you get disenchanted. And then there comes a point, and this is me the last several years, of a re-enchantment. And I think people are hungry for a re-enchanted life. There actually is unseen stuff. There actually is reality beyond what you can see. There actually is a struggle of good and evil. Actually, as C.S. Lewis said, all the stories, all the fairy tales are true because they point to a true and real story. And so this is my hope over the next several weeks, and today I've done the longest sermon ever, of re-enchanting you to the spiritual reality of God. And why? Because every time it talks about what God has done in the New Testament, it, so many times it refers to Christ's victory over the rulers and the powers and the authorities. Because he restores us to our original vocation. And so it shapes our identity and it shapes our mission. So Christ's death doesn't just become about like our guilt of sin. That's a part of it. But it's us restoring, our, God restoring us to humanity, to true humanity, starting the story over again, 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 and again with us. Would you stand and let's pray.